Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team welcome back to the mlb.com Statcast podcast i'm your host mike petriello joining me right here mlb.com national editor matt myers matt i think we have a fun show today because we're getting real close to the trading deadline so uh, i think that's what our show is going to be today we're going to stat cast the trading deadline but before we get to that a very brief and important sub lugo note Mets and Cardinals had a 12 o'clock start today, so we spent a decent part of our early afternoon watching Seth Lugo uh, look really good, right? One one run over seven innings against the Cardinals, threw the curveball 19 times, uh, four called strikes, four swinging strikes, one hit allowed, and uh, as Matt, our crack research team, noted, increase in curveball usage from Seth Lugo. We've been begging for this for like a year and a half. Yeah, it's uh, his top four, top four curveball usage in terms of curveballs thrown for his career have been the last month since june 17th all four of his top curveball games have been says and and i remember how, how many times is like please throw the curveball more i don't want six percent curveballs i want like 40 percent curveballs he's not there yet but he's getting there and seth legal also in his last start hit a home run a rocket into the left center field bleachers it's all it's all coming together for seth he keeps becoming more interesting this has been your semi-regular seth Lugo update there will be no luis perdomo updates uh although he seems to pop up even when we don't intend him to Let's get to the trading deadline, right? So we actually have seen a couple of trades already so far. It feels like things have gotten kick-started maybe a little earlier than usual this year. Uh, or just a recap of the trades we've seen. Jose Quintana to the Cubs, and we talked about this one a lot last week. Um, the Yankees and White Sox made a trade. Todd Frazier, Tommy Canley, and David Robertson for a variety of prospects, including, and you're thinking, Ian Clarkin? Blake Rutherford? No, I don't care about any of them. Tito Polo, who we talked about back in the World Baseball Classic when we first tried to roll out catch probability, and he made that back-and-forth catch that satisfied nobody. Uh, so now he's been a part of this trade. J.D. Martinez from the Tigers to uh, Arizona for three uh, prospects, and I think um, it was a very interesting trade because Martinez mashes. He's going to be great with Arizona. Nobody really liked the return that the Tigers got, but that kind of sets the market in a little bit of a way, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, the Nationals went out and got some bullpen help. Ryan Madsen, Sean Doolittle for Blake Trinan, and a couple of prospects. And then just today, this is an interesting one, David Phelps from Miami to Seattle for four prospects, and uh, it's kind of fun because four players for David Phelps is not exactly what you'd expect. He's good, but he's not that good. Three of the prospects were in uh, Seattle's top 22. That sounds pretty good. Zero of them were in the MLB top 100, which is a good reminder. You can't look at team prospect ranking. The White Sox have 10 of the current top 100 at MLBpipeline.com. There are several teams who have zero players, so you could reasonably say the 10th best White Sox prospect is better than the number one prospect on some other teams. Yeah, I haven't looked at this... uh that closely, but J.J. Cooper of Baseball America tweeted this today, um, and he said something to the effect of, like, 
it really seems like the chasm between the good farm systems and bad farm systems is wider than ever. And I'd actually been thinking that recently, and I think because we're starting to see more teams do this kind of like, like extreme rebuild, it sort of makes sense that you would sort of start to see, like there's definitely much, there's definitely teams that are definitely more willing to just sort of say, hey, we're rebuilding. Yeah. And just sort of just say it, I mean, like the White Sox literally say it, like we're not trying to win this year. Well, the White Sox are interesting because a very good way to get all of these top quality prospects is to have had really good players that you somehow couldn't win with in the first place. It's like they had an amazing core and just no depth whatsoever. And we've learned Astros, Dodgers, uh, depth is important. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through a list. We have identified about 10 guys who are very likely to be either traded or at least in trade conversations. Um, and we're going to, you know, put some stack guys to them. We're going to kind of point out why they're interesting. And then uh, we're going to say where maybe they would fit. And what's going to be interesting about that is that neither one of us remember to actually list those teams, so we're totally going to wing that part, which is going to be great. Uh, so we're going to start with Sonny Gray, but first, a quick promo. Do listen to the Fantasy 401 podcast. Uh, if you're playing 10-team head-to-head against your friends or a 20-team expert dynasty format, Fred Zinke, Matthew Leach can give you the edge. They will always keep you up to date on which players to pick up and who to target in trades before the rest of your league. Before you set your lineup or hit the waiver wire, subscribe to the Fantasy 401 podcast on iTunes today. So, with Jose Quintana already off, Sonny Gray, I think, is universally the most likely starting pitcher to be moved. And he's been a guy, like, the talent's been there, obviously. Inconsistent, injured. Last couple starts, he's looked really good, right? And then there's something interesting about his spin rate that I think would be interesting to fans and GMs. Yeah, uh, Sonny Gray, um, even though he's obviously always been the same pitcher, he's, as you said, he's had some uh, injury issues. And he, his four-seam spin rate is a career high, um, which I, I find, which sort of... In, you know, obviously for the purposes of this show, it makes him a lot more interesting. In fact, since June 25th, his four-seamer is averaging 25-17 RPMs, which is third among pitchers with at least 100 four-seamers thrown. And generally speaking, I, I realize, like, 2,500 is a really good benchmark for, if you're looking for, like, a rule of thumb benchmark for four-seam fastball, like, that's elite. That is, you, when you look at starting pitchers who are above 2,500, you don't see many. It's Darvish. It's Max Scherzer. It's Justin Verlander. So for some, for another, you, you see more relievers get up there because obviously they they can go max out a little bit more often. See a starter up in that range. That's not common and speaks speaks well to uh, to Sonny Gray. Now what I like about uh, Sonny Gray is that you know you were talking about high fastball spin rate. His curveball is also a very high fast spin rate, and that one has been like that for a while. Uh, his curveball over the last I believe uh, six starts or since June twenty fifth. 2,900 RPM. That's the eighth highest. And what's interesting about that, very high curveball spin, very high four-seam spin. Those two things don't always go together. You know, going back to Seth Lugo, people are like, oh, he must have high fastball spin. Not really. It's very specific to the curveball for Lugo, but for Sonny Gray, it's actually across multiple pitches. Yeah, and I mean, part of the reason um, we, we, you know, we, we pulled June 25th and, you know, I mean, part of this is, is research done for a piece that Anthony Kastrovitz is working on about how GMs can use StatCast at the deadline. Because a lot of the times, when you're, this is the same reason teams go out and scout guys at the, the deadline. You, know, you might be like, you know, why would anyone go scout Sonny Ray? We know what Sonny Ray can do. But it's to see, okay, is he throwing as hard as, as, as he usually does? Are the indicators there? Are we, if we trade for Sonny Gray, are we getting, quote unquote, Sonny Gray? Are we getting, like, you know, a maybe not quite as good version of it? So, like, the recent samples are really relevant when you're talking about whether or not you want to trade for guys. It's too obvious to say Sonny Gray to the Astros, right? Because that's been the connection for months. Um, I'm going to put the Brewers out there, right? Because I think the Brewers need some starting rotation help, but they don't need a rental. They need a guy they can control for another couple of years. Sonny Gray only makes $3.5 million this year. Two more years of arbitration left. He's not going to get a ton of wins or innings this year. He's not going to be making $12 million next year. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the Brewers 
when we discussed the Quintana trade in the last podcast, and that's why I thought he was a fit there because he was a player that they have the prospects and he's not going to add a ton of payroll. And I think that sending great for the Brewers makes a lot of sense for exactly that reason. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge Sonny Gray fan. I'm not sure he's someone that I would give up, you know, elite elite prospects. Well, I think there's a big drop-off between Quintana and him. For me, because I the, the durability of Quintana m- means a lot. Here's, here's my question. If the Brewers, uh, let's say the Cubs overtake the Brewers in the Central, which I believe they will. The Cubs I mean, they're already tied the loss. It, it happened pretty quick. They're yeah, already tied the loss. Actually, down. it happened a little quicker than I thought it would, but I've always believed that the Cubs would overtake the Brewers. But I've kind of I've jumped off the Rockies train a little bit. I think the Brewers are going to overtake what the about Rockies. The <laughs> well, the, D- the Rockies are now ahead of the D-backs. Anyway, my question is going to be: Let's say the Brewers do not take the Central. Let's say the Brewers end up in the wild card game, and you know, assume that everybody's rested. We know that's not always the case, but. Do you start Sonny Gray over, let's say, Jimmy Nelson? Jimmy Nelson's been really good. You know, it, that's kind of a weird question to even have to ask. Like six months ago, you'd thought you'd be thinking you were crazy, but you'd think it's crazy to think the Brewers are going to be in the playoff hunt in July too. Yeah, I, again, I think Gray makes sense for them for those reasons. I still don't love him. Like even his even his quote unquote great year where he finished like third in the Cy Young voting, he was striking out like seven and a half guys per nine. His FIP wasn't was not like particularly impressive. So I've never felt like he's to me, he's more of a number three, four, not a two. And I think, I think you're I, the low man. That's what I would give up for him. I, I would treat him as a three or a four. I treat him as a th- trade deadline. I would treat him as a three. I'm gonna say you would not give up Lewis Brinson for Sonny Gray. No, I, mean, I think the, the A's deep, will want the, that. The Brewers have a deep system, so they're actually a team that maybe um, would be willing to sort of like, you know, just sort of hold their nose and do it, knowing like, hey, we have a lot of depth, and this is something that we need right now. And I would totally, from the Brewers' perspective, I would totally understand it. From the Astros' perspective, I'm not sure I would do it. No, I wouldn't. I'm not sure I would give up Kyle Tucker. I wouldn't. uh, For they're not equated. They have they have high end guys. Derek Fisher maybe, but I don't know if that would get the deal done. Uh, I think it'd be a good starting point. So Sonny Gray, very high spin and very high risk, and maybe not as high of a ceiling as the A's would like to have you believe. The next pitcher on our list now, Yu Darvish, is a very different kind of pitcher. He's also had high spin, uh, high fastball spin, and uh, unlike Sonny Gray, he is a rental. He will be a free agent at the end of the year. He's making the remainder of $11 million, uh, so you know that's not a ton. Now, I like him. He's really interesting because ERA last year, 345. ERA this year, 341 for you know, 200 years of baseball, he'd be the same pitcher last year and this year. But it doesn't actually seem to be true if you look under the hood. Strikeout percentage is down from 32%, which is very, very good, to 26, which is a little bit above average. Expected weighted on base, 264 last year, which is elite. 303 this year, which is, again, slightly better than average. It does seem like there's a little bit happening here that says, well, don't look at the ERA. Maybe there's, maybe he's still very good, but I don't know. Is he not looking like the same elite you Darvish we'd once seen? You're still in on you, Darvish. I'm I still, can see it. I'm, st- I'm still, I'm still in on you, Darvish. He's, he's also, he's been, he, he's been maybe a little unlucky. He's, he's tied for the most hits allowed on non-hard contact, batted balls below, below 95 miles per hour exit velocity. So there might be a little bit of weirdness going on there. I, I still just, I, I believe in you. Um, <laughs> Thanks. You. <laughs> I believe in you, you. Um, but I don't think the Rangers are going to sell. I think the Rangers have been too pot committed for too long, and I don't think they get enough back for Darvish to make it. I think they're better off just rolling the dice and seeing what happens. Because here's a guy, I mean, like, yeah, the, the, the way the new qualifying offer works, and it definitely is changing the incentives at the trade deadline, and I think maybe it's something that's going to take a while to get used to, is that basically you cannot get a pick at the end of the first round unless you meet three conditions. You, off, you offer a qualifying offer, obviously, for Darvish, 
you would. You are eligible for revenue sharing, which I don't think the Rangers are. That gets murky. It's really hard to know yes. sometimes. And, and third, the player has to get more than $50 million. Which I believe he would. But he would. So, but then but the thing is, if you don't meet that second condition, revenue sharing, the pick is after comp round B. Which is like the third round? It's like something yes, like that? Fourth it's round? It's basically right before the third round. So basically, whereas in the past you would have gotten pick number 26 to 30 for you, Darvish. Now you're going to get pick 75 to 80 for you, Darvish. That's a big difference. But big difference. Um, so that's – and I, I'm almost certain the Rangers are not going to be I, a new sharing team. Well, I agree with you, first of all, that they probably won't sell. And, and I think we also agree that if they did, the Yankees would be a fantastic fit for you, Darvish, because they need to start a pitcher, right? I mean, I know they just made this big, this big trade for two relievers and Todd Frazier – they still need a starting pitcher. I don't trust anybody in that rotation right now, except for maybe Luis Severino. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, at this point, if you're going to make that trade, you're basically saying we're in it for this year. Granted, I mean, one thing about that trade is they, they have Robertson for next year and Canely for two more years after this one. So they definitely got controllable players, and we're seeing that, that, that those, those types of players are generating. That's where the interest is. So the rentals, you know, the, the market's changing, but the elite rentals, as we saw with Chapman last year, are still going to get are still in demand, and that you still, I think the to get, and the, you would still get an elite prospect for you, Darvish, for 10 starts. The Cubs would be a good fit, too. Brief Tommy Canley interlude. I looked this up the other day. So he was actually drafted by the Yankees and lost to Colorado as a rule fiver. Uh, in his very, I think his fourth career professional game in 2010 with the Rookie League Yankees, his catcher was a 17-year-old Gary Sanchez. So I thought that was cool. 17-year-old Gary Sanchez. And now he could be, you know, pitching to him in the majors. Uh, we are going to move on to some relief pitchers, I think, who, uh, you know, the relief market, I think, stands out from everywhere else. There's not a ton of bats, probably. There's only well, a couple starting well, pitchers. I mean, the thing is that there are, there are bats, but it's a lot of rental bats. And, like, it's hard to find homes for those guys because t- good teams usually have those spots. But, like, you know, Yonder Alonso and Lucas Duda, well, the Yankees just went and traded for Todd Frazier. That was the place where right. they were going to get in. So it's like, okay, well, now the there's much more supply than demand, so – and this is a good example, like, if, if you're the Mets or the A's, the A's in particular, where the A's might say, like, you know what, at this point, we'll, take, we'll offer a Yonder Alonso qualifying offer. We'd be happy to take him back for a year. And if he leaves, we'll get a first-round pick for him because he will probably sign for more than $50 million. The other thing is just every team could – there's no such thing as having too many relievers. Yeah. The, Do- the Astros don't need a bat. Sure, they could f- find room for Zach Braid. Same for the Dodgers, you know? So, uh, you know, the first one we just moved today, we already talked about a little bit, so we won't spend too much time on him, is David Phelps. Uh, David Phelps, you know, was a, this, this is going to be a, a recurring theme, I think. Guys who were mediocre starters and went to the bullpen and became very good relievers. For him, it's, it's a very expected story. He worked 91, 92 as a starter. Now he's 94, 95 as a reliever. Uh, you know, in two years of Miami as a reliever, he came over in the Prado Evaldi deal a couple years ago. Uh, 165 strikeouts and 133 innings pitched. I actually kind of liked that deal a lot. I think for both sides, that the Marlins could get four prospects for David Phelps is like mind blowing to me. On the other hand, I don't actually love any of those prospects. So you know he's still got another year of arbitration left. So good on the Mariners; they added a very good pitcher. Exactly. I mean, the, the top guy in that deal, Brian Brian Hernandez. I think yeah. uh, I'm not sure. It's B R A Y A N. I guess Brian Payne. Center center fielder. Um, he was a big bonus baby three years ago. We got 1.8 million bucks. So like he was highly regarded as. An amateur hasn't really done much, but like you know, you take a chance on a guy like that, particularly for David, you know, for David Phelps. And again, the the, the Mariners, because they know they're going to get him for a year and a half, were willing at least to give quantity, if not the high end quality, they gave they gave quantity. Yeah. Now the guy who's going to get quality, I think, in a way that's going to kind of blow people's minds, is Brad Hand. Brad Hand, if he gets traded, 
it's going to be for, I think, a big package, and people are going to go, Brad Hand? That guy's got a weird name, and he plays for the Padres. And, you know, I think, as we just said, mediocre starter turned into a very good reliever. Because if you look at his career numbers, 15 and 33, 406 ERA, four saves, and people are going to look at that and go, this guy's not any good. This guy got DFA'd by the Marlins on opening day last year, which is true and also ludicrous when you think about it now. So he uh, looks he looks to me, uh, and he's only making $1.4 million this year, by the way, too. So two more years of arbitration left. He is like a mini Andrew Miller to me in so many ways, right? Now, obviously, the similarities are lefties, failed starters with the Marlins, went somewhere else, moved to the bullpen, became very good. But it goes a little bit deeper than that, right? What does Andrew Miller do? Sliders and fastballs. And the reason he was able to do that is because he was able to ditch some pretty poor secondary pitches. Brad Hand dropped his bad curveball and his bad changeup to throw fastballs and sliders. If you look at the highest slider percentage uh, this year by lefties who've thrown at least 500 total pitches, Andrew Miller throws the most, 59%. Dan Jennings from the White Sox, the second most. And then Brad Hand, number three, throws 45% sliders. Uh, And he has been really, really good. He's actually got, and this was surprising to me, very high four-seam fastball spin. Um, If you look at all of the lefties who've thrown at least 100 fastballs, he's got the third highest fastball spin. And this is weird to me when I look this up. I don't actually have a good answer to this. His velocity has not really increased since he's become a reliever, but his four-seam spin has each of the last three years, which is unusual. You don't really see that happen that much. I don't have a good answer to that. I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, he's one of my favorite relievers to watch because his breaking ball is devastating. That um, slider is yeah, for real. And it's like, I mean, it's it's... It's it's kind of a slow slider. It's, to me, when I look at it, it looks more like a, a, a slurve. He actually has the, the kind of the breaking ball you'd ex- you sometimes see from like a really good loogie. You know, he looked like like Jerry Jerry Blevins is like a great breaking ball. But the separator and the reason why Hand is not a loogie is because he has a fastball with like legit velocity. You know, not many lefties throw ninety three and the high spin rate. So like it's something that righties aren't going to be able to tee off on. Right. You know, your typical loogie can't throw 93, so basically righties can tee off on the fastball. But he's got a legit fastball, and the breaking ball has such break that he can really get you know either back door or get it on the back foot. It's He's fun to watch. And so the fact that, because you, you're absolutely right, the fact that he's dangerous against righties as well means he's not in for one or two batters. And if you actually look at the last two seasons, and this is based a little bit, I think, on his background as a starting pitcher, only Chris Devensky of the Astros, who's outstanding, has thrown more relief innings. And that's becoming more important. Like, you know, you want a guy to come in and not necessarily be a closer as so much as a relief ace, you know, who can come in and get five important outs in the sixth or seventh inning. And that's what Brad Hand has done. So you look at a guy who's been really, really effective, making no money. He's basically making the league minimum, right? And he's got two more years of arbitration left. He's going to get a top 50 prospect at least, I think, and then more. Like, I mean, to start with, right? And then more beyond that, maybe even like a top 30 prospect. Because, like I said, people are going to look at those career numbers. I will point this out to you. When Andrew Miller signed a $36 million contract with the Yankees, which at the time seemed like a little high, and now it seems like the biggest steal in the world, his career numbers 30 and 38, 491 ERA, one save. You can throw out everything he did as a starting pitcher. It literally doesn't matter anymore. That's not the pitcher he is. Yeah, I mean, I- you could argue that he should command almost as much as Miller did last year at the trade deadline. He won't get it for a variety of reasons. Miller had a huge pedigree as a prospect. He was, you know, the number six pick, but was considered the best talent when he was drafted. So there was always belief that he had an incredible talent. Han was actually a second round pick, so he was like he was considered a good amateur, but he was not like yeah. he was not. I mean, Miller was legitimately like an elite elite guy. But to your point, Han has a track record. We're going on over a year. Made the all-star team. Of being like an elite relief pitcher, a lefty who can pitch to righties. And as we saw, because he doesn't get saves, 
he's actually not going to make that much money. No, he's not. He's making $1.4 million this year. He's going to get three maybe next year. You know, we saw with Batances last year where he, you know, there was that whole controversy because he basically didn't get a lot of arbitration because he didn't get saved. So Miller, when he was traded last year, got uh, Clint Frazier, who was at the time, I think, the number 24 overall prospect. From MLB Pipeline. As well and as Justice Sheffield, another elite pitching was, he was Well, he was back end. I think he was like number 75 overall. And then um, I think Ben Heller was not in the top 100. He was in the back end of the top two, 30. He was two top 100 prospects. So I think that's fair to say. You're right. He's not going to get as much. But if you were to see him traded, it's probably for like the number 30 prospect, then the number 80 prospect, something like that, depending I mean, on you know what the teams have. You know, there's been talk of the Dodgers going after Britain with the, with, the, with the Dodgers and Padres. Make. I mean, they made that big trade for Matt Kemp a couple years ago, so it's not crazy to think that they would do a deal again, particularly since the Padres are clearly saying, you know, we're not we're, we're trying to rebuild. We know Logan White loves those old Dodger prospects, exactly. although as time goes on, there's fewer of them still left in the so, Dodger system. Know, yeah. it's, 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 it's hard to name teams for him because, like, everybody. Could he be a Dodger? Sure. Astro? Absolutely. Maybe not the Yankees right now anymore. Cubs? Sure. I mean, Na- Nationals? Red Sox? The Red Sox could desperately use a left-handed reliever. I mean, I don't know if the Nationals, the Nationals have traded so many prospects in the last... Well, you know, you, don't, you would not trade Victor Robles for him, but would you trade Eric Fetty? I think I might. I'm kind of down on him. I mean, he's, he's probably going to be dropped out of the top 50 when Pipeline does their, their re-rank in a couple days. Yeah, well... Yeah, start somewhere. Yeah. It's, so. It's a, so supposedly, I think Rosenthal reported today about Justin Wilson, who we'll get to in a second, saying that the Nats were interested but would not give up Robles or Fetty for him. So. They should not give up Robles for him. But, but you Fetty? Ex- but you do get thinking about Brad Hand, he has an extra year of team control. Over Justin Wilson. Justin Wilson is a free agent after next season. Right. All right. Hey, let's speaking talk about Justin, Justin Wilson. Wilson. Now, I will say Justin Wilson is someone we have talked about on the show before because you had mentioned him, uh, like, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. I think it was when uh, they finally cut the rope with Francisco Rodriguez and they moved him into the closing spot, which is like early to mid-May. And you had brought up some interesting numbers on him. It was like four-seam fastball. He had like thrown like they're like he had like 26 at bats ending in a four seamer and there were no hits i can yes well i can tell you that right now he has a at least before yesterday he had a a 101 average against his fastball which is elite um justin wilson is a lefty he's only making 2.7 million dollars this year he is not a rental he has a year of arbitration left and so what i really like to look at when i look at just dominance is expected weighted on base and we've talked about this a bunch but for any new listeners the brief thing here is for every batted ball you look at exit velocity and launch angle and you can say well what should have happened there based on the quality of contact whether it gets caught or not is really immaterial because that's based a lot on the quality of your defense batted ball luck all that and then you throw that in with actual strikeouts and walks because that's obviously very important too. And we express it in terms of weighted on base, which is very much like on base percentage, except that uh, you get more credit for extra base hits. Not everything is weighted exactly equally. I have that explanation down to like a science now. I've said it so many times. But anyway, if we look at all of the relievers who have faced at least 100 batters and we rank them by the lowest expected weighted on base. So the top two names are like the least surprising names in the world, right? Kenley Jansen is number one. Craig Kimbrell is number two, as you'd expect. Uh, Number three, I'm actually not going to say it yet, because he's going to be our next guy. The number three name on that list is really surprising, I think, to me. But uh, number four, Roberto Arsuna, outstanding. Number five, Felipe Rivero, my favorite. Number six, Andrew Miller, obviously. Uh, number seven, Danny Barnes, out of nowhere. Danny Barnes for Toronto has really been outstanding, which maybe goes to show that you can just, like, relievers just drop out of the sky for any team that's not the Nationals. Uh, and then after that, Justin Wilson. Justin Wilson has been, by this measure, one of the top, what is this, eight, nine relievers in baseball this year. Uh, he actually jumped his strikeout percentage from last year. It was, I think, 25%. This year, it's almost 37%. That is the sixth biggest jump in baseball. He's blowing guys away this year, and now he's got that closer pedigree, which shouldn't matter, but you know it does. 
right? Yep. What's benefiting the buyers here is that there are a lot of options in this this space. You know, there's Wilson. If you're looking for a lefty, there's Wilson and there's Hand. Both have some controllable years. So that that would make it down to the wire because teams are playing chicken. And maybe Britain if they. If and they maybe go. Britain. That's the other thing. Britain who's and he's got he's under control through next year. Through next year. And then you also have Tony Watson. He's a rental. Although I'm thinking less likely that the. Uh, at this point, the uh, the Buckos are starting to uh, starting to percolate. Only four games behind four the games uh, back. Watson hasn't actually been that great this year. But before we move on from Wilson, you know he he's not an out of nowhere guy. You know I know he's he's bounced around Yankees, Pirates, Tigers. Uh, but for the last four years, he's been a, a perfectly capable reliever, right? I'd say like slightly above league average. Uh, and then this year, he's actually like I said, been elite. So you, you always want to know well what changed. It's not like he was a starter. Uh, he. He was. Uh, we were fortunate enough that he actually told us exactly what changed. He talked to uh, Jason Beck, our Tigers beat reporter, back in January, and he basically said everything's hard. My breaking ball is hard. My goal this offseason is to get some separation to try to get a true slider rather than a cutter that's just trying to be a slider. And it was true. I looked this up last year. He basically threw four seamers, sinkers, and cutters. And what do those have in common? They're all fastballs, right? I mean, that's a lot of the same look. So this year he dropped the sinker entirely. Lost a lot of ground balls because of it, but. He started adding in the slider, so he's, like some of the other guys we've talked about, very much a four-seam slider guy, which does seem to be the trend these days. Maybe all these guys would be great in Colorado because that seems to be what they want. And, you know, that's fine if you've got the fastball to make it work, and he does. 201 relievers have thrown at least 100 four-seamers, and he has the 20th best uh, spin rate. Spin rate of over 2450. The league average is 2270. So it's a very good pitch. He's throwing it more and then also dropping in the slider to keep guys off balance. It turns out sometimes it is as simple as taking your best pitch and throwing it more. CC Seth Lugo, re curveball. <laughs> um, yeah, not quite the 2500 club for uh, Justin Wilson, but he's, al- he's almost there. Now, I did say when I looked at, I read this list, right? I said uh, lowest expected weighted on base by reliever, Jansen number one, Kimberl number two. And I didn't want to say who number three was because he was the next guy on our list. I wonder how many guesses I would have to give you to get number three if you didn't actually know who it was. Like 100? I'm not even sure that would be enough. Pat Nishik. It's Pat Nishik. He was an all-star. So. It doesn't even matter. It's Pat Nishik. And I like Pat Nishik. I think he's awesome. Uh, and if you look, he has been the third most dominant reliever in baseball this year. I think if there's one player that is 100% going to get traded before July 31st, if you had to rank... Players based on likelihood of getting traded for July thirty first. It's Pat Nishik. He might get Pat traded Nishik. before the show is over. <laughs> I think Pat Nishik is number is number one. He, I mean, he is on. Uh, I think the, team, the Phillies have the most losses in baseball. I mean, they're obvious sellers, right? He is thirty five ish. Yeah. Uh, he is going to be a free agent at the end of the year. There is no reason for him to be kept beyond the trading deadline. I mean, I agree with you totally. Um, he's actually been he's, he's been really good. You know, I know that people think of him in the funky delivery and everything, but 38 innings, 48 strikeouts, and five walks. He's allowed only three barrels all year long. He's been legitimately very good, and I do think he's going to end up, like I said, probably anywhere. Like, there's no team that would say, oh, I don't need Pat Nishik. And he's it, not going to cost a ton, I don't think. Yeah, the other thing that's, I mean, a guy like that, too, is, like, if, you, if he ends up on a team with a deep bullpen, right now he's closing, closing for, you know, but, like, you put him on a team with deep bullpen, you can basically function as like a, a right-handed, a right-hand specialist. You don't even have to like you can really spot him, and then he, in that situation, then he's like really dominant. The rarely seen Rugi. But like in, a, in the postseason, if he goes to a deep bullpen, you know this, you, you can use him much more, much more aggressively and specifically to you know sort of save him for the best right-hand hitter in the opposing lineup. And this is actually something interesting. Is a little bit of a little bit of a digression, but I'll make the point here, is that like I saw you know part of why. Wilson or Hand makes so much sense for the Nats is they don't really have a really good left-hand reliever, and they're at this point. Well, they've shown they've shown Doolittle now. 
I guess that's true. That's true. They do do little now, and that's part of the is the the lefty heavy Dodgers. Um, but uh, I guess yeah, I just I forgot about do little. So yeah, that back. But, no, still, but, like, but the Dodgers that was a real weakness last year against lefties, and they they have improved that too. But yeah, yeah my point is somebody like at this point, if you're a team like the Nats or the Dodgers, you basically you're thinking about postseason series and matchups. Like, okay, who am I have to go through? Because right. you know you're you know you're winning your division. The, and the, you the Dodgers might actually never lose a game again. <laughs> that's, that's that's the trend we're on. Uh, and then you know we're going to skip over Tony Watson. He's yet another lefty pitcher available. He's not having a great year, like you said. We don't know what the Pirates are going to do anyway. Uh, we got a couple of hitters we want to talk about, and I, we've probably talked about Alex Avila before, but he's one of my favorite stories of the year. Uh, we know the Tigers are going to sell. You know they already traded Martinez. Justin Wilson might be next. Alex Avila is making nothing. Two million dollars this year, and he's a free agent. So he's you know a, a rental um if you look at what alex avila has done this year it's actually stunning i remember last year he got signed like i said two million is nothing and fans were upset they thought it was nepotism because his dad's a general manager they thought that's the only reason he got a job and you look at what alex avila has done this year 223 hitters of 50 plate appearances the top hard hit rates which we define as 95 miles an hour of exit velocity or more number one aaron judge 55.5 percent very very good number two alex avila 54.7 percent you look at the top expected weighted on base, number one, Aaron Judge, 449. Number two, Mike Trout, may have heard of him, 442. Number three, Alex Avila. Now, granted, he's not playing every day. He doesn't have like 500 plate appearances, um, but he has a 413 on base. He's a 508 slugging, weighted runs created plus of 149, where 100 is league average. He's not the greatest catcher in the world, but he can play a little bit of first base, which is why I kind of like him for a team like the Rockies. You know, I think the Cubs could probably use a, another backup catcher. Like, there's a lot of teams who could use a guy like that. I, th- I, think, I think he's going to end up on the Cubs. Um, I think at this point, the Cubs, I'm sort of surprised. I'm a little surprised by what the Cubs have done um, because I thought they had such farm system depth that they could really build, you know, the kind of quote-unquote dynasty where it turns over for, you know, 10 years. You know, kind of you think of, like, what the Braves had for a long – obviously the pitchers or the Cardinals were basically they were just like a good team in perpetuity because they never really – yeah, they traded top, top prospects from time to time. For the most part, they basically just, like, turned over. And when they did, they traded them for, cost, you know, guys under control. But the Cubs have really put their chips in basically saying Bryant Rizzo Prime, like, basically, like, we're, they were basically like, this is it. We're, we're really putting it in for the next – right. Four or five years. They have the ability to add free agents. You know, I'm not saying that like, oh, it's dumb, but I'm surprised at the the aggressive nature by which they've really traded away prospects. And hey, they might win the World Series. Probably know they're going to win the World Series again they this year. Very well, might. But I agree with you. Avila is a good fit there. He's not going to cost a lot. Uh, they don't really have a, you know Contreras is a good starter, but since they fired Montero north of the border, they don't really have a, a backup. I think Avila is a perfect fit. And there's not a ton of teams. Contenders who need a catcher. You know, the Astros have uh, Gaddis and McCann. The Dodgers have Grandal and Barnes. Like I said, I think the Rockies would fit. The Diamondbacks haven't gotten a lot out of their catchers, but I think they're pretty happy with Jeff Mathis for the other stuff he brings. Um, so, yeah, the Cubs just seems almost too obvious. And I think, you know, I think the Tigers, again, similar situations. Like, the Tigers are definitely starting a bit of a rebuild. They should probably see what they can get. The Cubs aren't going to – I mean, it's not like he cost a great prospect, but, like, at this point, you I'll, know. I'll throw out one other, one other team I hadn't thought about until right now. The Yankees. Right now, obviously Gary Sanchez is their catcher, but Austin Romine is you know he's fine; he can be replaced. And then Alvila, you know, even though they just got Frazier, is going to play some first base, or Headley might play first base. There's still a pretty big hole at first base. Yeah. So you play Avila a little bit, catcher, first base, DH, lefty swinger, I think, right, right down that right field line. Well, this is why I still think the Yankees could be in this. The next name on our list, uh, Alonzo. I still think the Yankees could be in on him. I still think the Yankees could be in on Duda because they also have a DH, but like a guy who can hit, particularly a left-handed bat. Yeah. You know, I think that that's why I don't. 
I mean, the freight truck was, it was sort of billed as the freighter trade, but to no, me he's, he's the third most important yeah. piece there. Uh, <laughs> Duda should have been a Yankee six weeks ago, by the way. But before we get, I just got to say one more thing about Alex Avila. We have talked on this show a lot about Comerica Park and how it's like the anti-course field because it's just so big. I have to share with you some extremely wild Alex Avila splits, and it's not in the way you think they would be. He crushes the ball at home. 468 on base, 575 slugging, 23% strikeout rate. On the road, 340 on base, 449 slugging. I mean, still good. And 38% strikeout rate. And I remember, because you asked me this the other day, J.D. Martinez actually had the exact same thing. You'd think, oh, he's going from Detroit to Arizona. Well, he's actually a lot better at home. And this is not just this year. This is the last couple years. So I have a theory about this that I've been working on. Uh, and we'll, we'll do that another time. But anyway, I find that fascinating, right? It's, re- it's, really, it's really interesting and weird. It's so weird. Uh, so as you said, Yonder Alonso is a, you know, we know the A's would sell. He's making $4 million this year. He's a free agent. I think they'd probably like to extend him, but I think they'd probably also like to get something for him first, maybe bring him back. I, I mean, it's, it, in a weird way, they're probably less desperate than the Mets are with Duda because for the reason I mentioned, like, they, would, they could theoretically get a first-round pick for Alonso. Oh, well, we know where they fall in the revenue yeah. share, yes. But the Mets would not be able right. to, I mean, the Mets might be willing to... I don't think they'd give him a qualifying offer anyway, Lucas Duda. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely it's certainly, a bit of a, certainly a bit of a risk. But at least the, difference, the other difference with the new qualifying offer system, though, is that teams can no longer lose a first-round pick. The, the highest pick you can lose for signing a guy is a second-round pick, I believe. So the point being that there's going to be... Teams will be less concerned with signing guys who've got qualifying offers because they'll have to give up right. less. And uh, so that also is going to impact a lot of the qualifying offers. Well, Alonzo's been one of our favorite players this year because, you know, for the last six years, he's been a somewhat disappointing, underpowered first baseman. You know, 334 on base. This is his career through 2016. 334 on base, 387 slugging, basically league average, which is, you know, not that impressive. This year, 373 on base, 556 slugging, 21 dingers, uh, 149 weighted runs created plus, and there's no secret as to why. He was pretty open about it in the offseason, saying he wanted to get on board the airball revolution. He's like, I want to try to hit the ball in the air. His launch angle in 2015 was 8 degrees. His launch angle in 2016 was 10 degrees. His launch angle this year is 21 degrees. I mean, he said he was going to do something, and he did it. And this is my favorite fact about him. Uh, his strikeout percentage went up from 14% to 24%. So I guess that makes him a bad hitter, you know? Um, there's... The one, I don't know if it's a red flag, but just of late, he has not been hitting the ball nearly as well. Um, since through June 15th, he was 11th uh, in uh, percentage of batted balls that were, we define as quote-unquote barrels, 15.6%. Since then, that number has plunged to below 5%. Again, we're talking about a month worth of bats, but if, you're, you know, if, if you are looking at him now and you're scouting him and you're seeing, oh, maybe, maybe the magic's worn, worn off, I, it, it certainly can affect. I mean, this guy does not have a lot of tr- big track record. Dude has a much better track record. Yes. So neither one of them are going to re- demand no, a lot. No, but my point is simply that similarly, like when there's not a lot out there, granted the Red Sox might jump back in looking for first base, and that could change the market a little bit. That's true. Well, I, I think that's uh, you know we have one more show before the trading deadline, so I think seeing what a team like the Pirates will do over the next week will maybe you know we didn't actually get to Andrew McCutcheon today. I have a lot of thoughts on him, but. If the Pirates go 7-0 and or if they go 0-7, that completely changes where they are. Andrew might get traded. It's not happening between now and our next I show. agree with you. So that's our show for this week. Uh, we will catch you next week on the MLB.com StackGuest Podcast.
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.